Get your advanced PhD in WOW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles. It's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. America's national parks are one of the country's greatest treasures, and many people have it on their bucket list to visit one or more of these gyms. But figuring out where to go and how to execute a national park experience can sometimes feel a little overwhelming. Here to offer some really helpful advice on both visiting and camping in the national parks is Jeremy Puglisi, co-author, along with his wife Stephanie, of Where Should We Camp Next? National Parks the best campgrounds and unique outdoor accommodations in and around national parks, seashores, monuments, and more. Today on the show, Jeremy walks us through how to navigate the complex reservation system some of the parks have in place and what it takes to secure a campsite inside the parks. He then shares his best tips for getting the most out of a national park experience in general, as well as when you're visiting some of the country's most iconic destinations, including Yosemite, Yellowstone, and the Grand Canyon. At the end of our conversation, Jeremy shares the national parks he thinks are underrated, And if you want to avoid the crowds of national parks, he also shares his picks for the country's best state parks. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awm.is slash nationalparks. All right, Jeremy Puglisi, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's so great to be here. And thank you so much for always having authors on your show. Big, big fan of your podcast. Great to be here. Well, thank you so much. So we had you and your wife, Stephanie, on the show a few years ago to talk about how to plan and execute the perfect road trip. And the reason why I want to bring you back on this time is you have you all have a new book out called Where Should We Camp Next? National Parks. So I know a lot of people, they're planning summer vacations they're thinking about maybe doing some national parks. And these can be surprisingly tricky to navigate. And I'm hoping we can get some advice from you today. But also I want to talk about camping in national parks. That's something that a lot of people don't, I mean, you can do, but I think a lot of people just think about visiting national parks. So camping inside of a national park adds another dimension, maybe complexity to the thing, but maybe some high reward there. Let's talk about you and your wife's experience and your family's experience with camping in national parks. You guys are big campers. You do a lot of RVing. How many national parks have you all camped in? So between the two of us, we've done about half of the 63 national parks. And then we've done a lot of the other national park sites, which are not necessarily national parks. And it's been about a decade of doing long RV trips with our kids. And every summer, we definitely hit up a few of our national parks. I would love to get to all of them. I don't know if that'll happen, but we're working hard to do so. What's been your favorite national park you've visited so far? So my favorite, and this surprises people, my favorite's Olympic National Park in Washington State. 
And uh, I think that's because it has so many different ecosystems. You've got the mountains, you've got the ocean, you've got rainforests, you've got some really hip, cool gateway towns, and it's pretty close to Seattle. So you kind of can fit in a city trip if you want to as well. So that's always been my favorite. I think Stephanie would say Glacier National Park was her favorite. So you're still trying to hit national parks every time you'd go out uh, traveling in the summer? Yeah. And this is, you know, one of our biggest tips is we often do a big national park trip at the very end of August. That's the time we've been really um, zooming in on because our kids are still off school here in the Northeast. They go back after Labor Day. And so what we've discovered is most of the country is back to school at that point. So we have hit some of the major national parks at the very end of the summer and not had the crowding issues that everybody has been talking about. So you mentioned there's 63 official national parks, but you mentioned that there's other sites or land governed by the National Park Service. What other sites should people consider when they think National Park Service? Yeah, so there's 63 national parks, but there's 424 national park sites, and there's all different kinds of designations. You've got national seashores, like uh, Cape Hatteras National Seashore, Cape Cod National Seashore. You've got national lakeshores like Sleeping Bear Dunes in Michigan. You've got national recreation areas. We have in New Jersey, we have Gateway National Recreation Area. You've got national memorials, national parkways. And the thing that we really wanted to get across in the book is that a lot of them have amazing camping experiences. Sometimes there's sites inside those parks, but sometimes you have to camp outside of the parks. But we wanted to sort of redistribute the balance of how people look at national park camping trips because we all think of the iconic trips out west and there are just there are more national parks in the west but in the east we have a lot of those other designations we have a lot of the recreation areas the seashores the lakeshores the monuments and those offer great camping experiences too and we really wanted the book to give people alternatives from the places that are so so crowded some of which i think we'll talk about today another thing i didn't think about but it made sense like the civil war sites that's national park service hundred percent. And like, so Gettysburg, there's no campgrounds in Gettysburg National Battlefield, but there's a whole culture of camping right outside of Gettysburg. There's also a lot of campgrounds outside of Fredericksburg. Almost all of those major sites have camping right outside of them. And people love to go on camping trips and make a whole tour out of it. So yeah, the big takeaway there, don't limit yourself just to the national parks. The national parks are great. We're going to talk about some of them today. But also think outside the box. Think of the other lands or sites governed by the National Park Service. Let's talk about just visiting national parks in general. Maybe someone's just planning on going there. They're not, they don't want to camp, but they want to visit a national park. I'm sure people have heard, or if they've tried in the past five years to visit a national park, they've heard or experienced that getting into a national park can be surprisingly difficult. Why is getting into a national park so hard sometimes? So my theory here is that during the pandemic, interest in national parks, interest in camping exploded for obvious reasons. But then everybody that had been taking other types of vacations like cruises or flying to Europe, I think a lot of them just wanted to go to the same five or six places that they'd been hearing about their whole lives. They'd been hearing about Yellowstone. They'd been hearing about Yosemite. They'd been hearing about a little place called Zion. And so I think that we had an absolute flood of people that were new to camping and maybe even kind of new to road tripping, all trying to descend on the same places at one time. So it it is true that there are crowding issues at the most popular national parks at the most popular times. 
but shoulder seasons are pretty open. And there's also so many great national parks that are off people's radars. Now, I would never tell someone, don't go to Yellowstone. Don't go to Yosemite. If that's your travel dream. Go do that. And we've gone to those places too. We just wanted to open up some other options as well. And, you know, some of the places that we want to talk about, I think like Yosemite, you know, it's near San Francisco, right? So that's going to be crowded. There's massive population density nearby. Great Smoky Mountains National Park is, you know, within striking distance of massive population density. So a lot of people go to Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It's our most visited park. But then there are places that are a, a bit more off the beaten track that people cannot get to quite as easily. Uh, and there's, there's campsites open. There really are. Okay, so some national parks, they're very popular. Different times of the year, they're going to be more popular. I imagine summer, like early summer is probably the peak time for most of them. That sweet spot where all of the kids in the country are off for school is the worst time. It's the hardest time, the most difficult time to go because you have kids in the country that go back to school after Labor Day. Then you have kids in the country that get off earlier in May. So that place in the middle where like every kid in America is off, that is definitely, honestly, a very tricky time to do these uh, types of trips. So if you can anyway move off to the beginning or end of the summer, as opposed to say July, you're going to do better. And then of course, if you're not traveling with kids and that's not an issue for you, the shoulder seasons are a really wonderful time to visit almost all of these places that we want to talk about. Okay. So I think something people often don't realize with the national parks is that sometimes you need a reservation ahead of time just to get into the park or to do certain things in the park. And we had a nightmare experience with this during the pandemic. So 2021, my wife was turning 40 and she wanted to go to Yosemite for her 40th. So I thought, okay, great. I'll go to recreation.gov, buy the tickets. At the time, they were expecting you to reserve your spot into the park three days in advance of your arrival at the park. So a couple of weeks before the date I needed to buy my permit, I got on there to get familiar with recreation.gov and see how fast things went and just to practice buying the permit because I heard that things go can go fast. And so I got on there and tickets went fast. Like in three minutes, they were all gone. But every time I was able to put a a permit in my shopping cart and delete it. So I thought, okay, I'm not gonna have a problem with this. So on the day of, like this is the day that it counted. I had to get one, a permit on this day because we'd be at Yosemite in three days. I had to get it. We had already bought lodging. We already bought plane tickets. So this was now or never. So I had my friend Grant, him and his wife, Marion, were going to come with this as well. I said, hey, you get on too and you just start refreshing your browser and see if you get one, we'll increase the chances. So we started doing it. Got on 10 o'clock central time in the morning, ticked, started refreshing the browser, trying to get one, trying to get one, trying to get one. And none of us got one. They were gone in a minute. And I remember I was like, oh my gosh, I just ruined Kate's 40th birthday. This is devastating. Luckily, my friend Grant, he was clutch. He got on Reddit right after that happened and started searching about, you know, getting permits or whatever. And he found that if you get the app, sometimes they reserve a few permits for the recreation.gov app. So he downloaded the app really quick and he was able to get a permit for us to get in. So yeah, he saved the day. So that's one tip there. If you're trying to get into a hard to get into park or uh, an attraction at a park, don't just use the browser, get the app as well. 
And what was interesting, I was like, why is it, this is like an off season. We went in February. I was like, this is an off season. Why was it so crazy to get in at this time? And what was going on as in Yosemite around February 20th, there's this uh, phenomenon. It's the firefalls. There's like a waterfall. And at sunset, the sun hits this waterfall and it looks like fire is going down the wall of the mountain. And so there's photographers from all over the world who are trying to get in to get a picture of this. If you look it up, you can see pictures of this online or videos of it. Get there and except for people around the waterfall, the park was empty. We had basically had the park to ourselves. We went on these great hikes, didn't see anybody on the trails at all. So, I mean, that was another thing that I thought was interesting. Even though a park might be busy or hard to get into, you might have it to yourself because people are there for a certain attraction. And another thing too is what we saw when we got to Yosemite was some people didn't know about the reservations that you needed in advance. You'd see these people in line. I'm sure they drove hours to get to Yosemite. They get to the gate and they didn't have the permit and say they just had to turn around and go back. So lessons there, check in advance with the park you plan on visiting, like months in advance if they have a reservation system. Be prepared to for some parks or some attractions to have to you know really be ready and try to refresh the browser to get a permit, use the app. And yeah, that was the thing. Just do a lot of research in advance. But I'm curious. I mean, so that was the pandemic. A lot of people were going to the national parks during this time. So I think a lot of parks put in this permit system. Is that still the case? Do a lot of parks still have this, you need a reservation in advance just to get into the park? Uh, Well, it's only a handful, but actually I'm guessing that a lot of those people that got turned away that day were not Yosemite rookies. I'm actually thinking a lot of them are probably people that have been going to Yosemite for years and never needed that reservation because this whole thing made a lot of news during the pandemic because it had never happened before. The National Park Service has always required reservations for campsites, but, you know, for all of its history, you could just drive up and, you know, get into the park. And so since the pandemic, though, they have been targeting really specific parks and some really specific uh, attractions or things like Firefall. This year, there's only five parks that require like a reservation to get into the park. And again, we're not talking campsites here. We're just talking getting in. So actually, Yosemite doesn't require a reservation to get in this year, though they do require reservations for Firefall, as you described. But this year, Acadia requires a reservation to get in, but that's not the whole park. That's like the Park Loop Road. Arches requires a reservation. Glacier requires a reservation, but it's only for going to the Sun Road. And you need to remember, these national parks are gigantic. So sometimes they're just pinpointing the busiest part of the park and saying, you need a reservation to get in. And in Glacier, from what I understand, it's only from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. that you need that reservation for going to the Sun Road. You can be in other parts of the park and not need a reservation at all. Uh, Rocky Mountain National Park, you need reservations for specific things. And then Haleakala in Hawaii, you just need a reservation if you want to come in super early and do the sunrise, which is very popular. So what the MPS is doing is they're just targeting things they know that get overcrowded. And I think they're almost keeping people from getting disappointed by like showing up and not being able to park or not being able to, to, to get in. So it's very limited. For the most part, every National Park Service site, you can pull up and pay the price to get in and not have a problem. Yeah, I know at Zion, they instituted, you, you don't need a reservation to get into Zion, but to do this hike called Angel's Landing, you need a permit or a reservation in advance to do that. And I will admit, I, I, will, I will never do that hike. And uh, I think you did, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And it, I, we took our son, went up it, 
and he was like 11 or 10 at the time. I think he was like 10 or nine. It was crazy because it's just like a chain and you're just going up the sheer cliff. The view was great, but it was pretty crazy going up there. And it was definitely crowded too. You just kind of had to keep inching up this long line of people. I don't blame the NPS for limiting the number of people doing that hike, though, because it's dangerous. So there's been a lot of grumbling about the National Park Service implementing some of these reservations, but they, they tend to know what they're doing. And I think like that one definitely makes sense. And like Acadia National Park, the Park Loop Road, if you let too many people in, then you can't park anywhere. So you literally could just drive around it, but it would be impossible to stop and check out any overlooks. So for the most part, I, you know, 99% trust the NPS to make good decisions about this stuff. So I guess the takeaway there, if there's a national park you're going to visit, I would get on recreation.gov to check out the different reservation policies if you need one in advance, et cetera. I would do two things. I would go to nps.gov, like go to the actual National Park Service website, and then click through to recreation.gov. Because what I've discovered over the years is sometimes there's more and better information on the National Park Service website. And then recreation.gov is just where you go to make the reservation. And sometimes the information can be different. But if you look at both of them together, you're going to get the whole picture of, of whatever's going on with the res- reservation system. Okay, so always do your research beforehand as to whether you need a reservation to get into the park or uh, to do a certain hike in the park. And then also be aware that those passes, they can be hard to get sometimes. And that can be especially true when it comes to getting a reservation for a camping site. What does it take to get a campsite inside a national park? So like for Yosemite, it is literally, and we could talk about a few different parks here, but for somewhere like Yosemite, it, it becomes incredibly, incredibly stressful. There's like 13 campgrounds inside the park. Some of them you can re- reserve five months early. Some you can reserve two months early. Some you can reserve two weeks early. So you got to figure all of that out. And again, nps.gov and then go to Yosemite, they lay out everything for you. They have 20 pages worth of information on the reservation system. Like you need a PhD to book a reservation here. And then they basically tell you, they give you a chart of when you need to get on your laptop and at what time. So basically you need to be on your laptop at 7 a.m. Pacific time on the day that the campsites are going to be released. And then on the National Park website, It actually says that thousands and thousands of campsites disappear in seconds. And the issues become so stressful that there's been a a lot of complaint from the public about it. The public is saying, you know, it's not equitable. Not everybody has access to high-speed internet. And some people are gaming the system. They've actually had problems with hackers and bots invading the system and getting campsites at Yosemite. And this is a this is a real thing. I actually had somebody direct message me on Facebook and say, "Hey, if you want to get into Yosemite or Yellowstone this summer, I've got a hacker for you. I've got somebody. It's a little expensive, but I can get you the campsite." So um, the National Park has service has kind of become aware of how stressful and awful this is, particularly at like you know Yosemite Zion, et cetera, et cetera. So now they're experimenting with a lottery system at Yosemite which could spread to other campgrounds across the country. So basically, you know, you put in the dates you want or you put in when you want to go and they sort of pull your name out of a digital hat and then you get early access to the reservation system. And I kid you not, there are seven pages of instructions just to show you how to get the early access through the lottery system. 
But I do kind of hope that that kind of lottery system becomes more widespread because I do think it's it's even harder for people to get reservations if they're not really kind of sophisticated with their laptops, as silly as that sounds. Okay, so getting a campground, it's going to vary depending on the national park. Yosemite doesn't have very many campsites, so there's an elaborate reservation system. And really, I mean, you just have to take the time to to walk through the instructions and then basically be at your computer at a certain point and just ready to hit refresh over and over again until you get a spot, correct? No, you need to be on your laptop. Your wife needs to be on your laptop. Your three kids need to be on their Chromebooks. That's what people do. They get the whole yeah. family literally trying to do it. And yes, you're hitting refresh. And I have tried this and I have had my heart broken many times. And, you know, the, the sites disappear quickly. And then a couple of times I've been able to get them at some super popular places. But that is definitely an issue. You know, I mean, there's people that feel like they're not going to ever build a camp inside Yosemite during their lifetime, you know. Okay, so get a campsite, you have to look at each national park, it's going to be different on how far in advance you have to get a spot could be six months, could be five months, could be two months, could be two weeks. And I also imagine there are some national parks where you could probably just go to the place and like, there's probably a campsite there because it's not as popular for example, are there any national parks like that? Yeah. I mean, I I think you could go to somewhere like Big Bend in Texas. You know, I think there are definitely some parks that are like, you could walk Shenandoah National Park is in Virginia. That's kind of closer to me. I would be willing to bet money I could book a site there this weekend right now. So there's definitely some places that fly under the radar and there's sites available almost at any time. But summer weekends, almost anywhere are going to be booked inside the parks. And to kind of emphasize a little bit why that is, it's dirt cheap to camp inside the national parks. It's often 10, 20, maybe $30 a night. And those campgrounds are in the most beautiful, spectacular locations right inside the parks. And then also you don't have to worry about getting into the park in the morning, as you were describing, because you've already gone through that process. You're already in there. You're waking up in the park and then able to either take a shuttle or just go on a hike right from your, your campsite. But there's places that are definitely less crowded, for sure, if you dig around. And our, and our book has a ton of them. Okay, so camping inside a national park can be stressful. Are there any other campsites that people should consider that are outside of a national park that can give you easy access to the national park, but avoiding the stress and headaches of camping inside the national park? Yeah, so it does become much easier to move outside of the park and look outside of the park. Those types of campgrounds do not book up as quickly they're often two to three times to four times more expensive, right? So that's one of the dynamics at work here is that a site inside of Yellowstone might be 20 bucks. A site outside of Yellowstone could very easily be 100 bucks a night because it's a small business owner trying to make a profit. And many of those campgrounds outside the parks are beautiful, but they're not going to be as beautiful as being in the park. So there's major trade-offs. But if you wanted to do like a last second national park trip right now after listening to this podcast, you're most likely going to end up looking outside the parks. A good place to start, which I often recommend, is KOA. That's Campgrounds of America. They have 500 campgrounds. It's a franchisee system. And they tend to have a strong presence outside of most national parks. Like, for instance, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, there's going to be like eight KOAs uh, around the perimeter of Great Smoky Mountains. But it also depends on gateway towns. So somewhere like Yosemite does not have an immediate gateway town. You're going to drive an hour away to find other camping options. Now, somewhere like Great Smoky Mountains National Park, there are camping options literally right outside the gates of the park. So it's going to vary a bit, but it's always going to cost more. And it's always probably going to be easier to get sites. 
are state parks a good option for camping outside of national parks? I imagine there's a lot of state parks close by to some of these national parks. State parks can be, definitely, for sure. Like I think of Custer State Park in South Dakota is a great place to stay if you want to go to Mount Rushmore. Also, national forests are a really great place to look where there's more sites available. So particularly thinking about like Yellowstone and Grand Teton, they're surrounded by national forest campgrounds. And those are often first come, first served, which makes it a bit tricky if you're coming from far away. And there's often maybe like a dirt road to get in. It's a little more rugged. There's not a lot of services. But a lot of people do end up in national forest campgrounds, sometimes state parks. It's unusual to have a national park and a state park like right next to each other, though it does happen. Indiana Dunes, which is now a national park, also has Indiana Dunes State Park literally right next door. And then one of our favorites, Assateague Islands State Park, literally right next door is Assateague Islands National Seashore. So you could, you know, play that game there. If you can't get into the national park, try the state park. But that's going to be a little bit the exception to the rule, I think. Well, another option to consider is dispersed camping. So dispersed camping is uh, you can do it on certain national lands. And basically, you drive out there and you can camp pretty much wherever you want, wherever you can find a spot. There are a few regulations about where you can camp. But generally, you know, it's wherever. And you, but the thing is you got nothing, like there's no water, there's no restrooms, you're digging a cat hole, but it's, it's a good way to avoid the crowds and it's free. So what about dispersed camping? Uh, where is that an option? Yeah. So you can do dispersed camping on BLM land, which is only in about 13 States in the American West though. Like I'm a New Jersey guy. I'm jealous. We don't have that. Also, you can do dispersed camping in national forests. And like, if you go to the National Forest Service website, they have rules for how you know close or far you can be from the road if you need a permit, if you don't. In those situations, if you're going to try, you know, what I often call boondocking, what you just called dispersed camping, you can often call a field office, whether it's BLM or National Forest, where there's a ranger or there's jurisdiction over the land. And it's very wise to check in because, you know, Mother Nature's at work and sometimes things are flooding or sometimes trees are down and roads are cut off. So there is often a point of contact that you can make literally by picking up a phone and calling somebody to say, hey, look, I want to do dispersed camping in this national forest. Is there anything I need to know? Is anything closed, et cetera, et cetera? It's getting much bigger in the American West, not so much a thing in the American East, And uh, one of the reasons it's getting bigger among RV owners is because RVs are becoming much more equipped with solar to be able to be out in the middle of nowhere without electrical hookups. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Texas Pete is the sauce that allows you to sauce like you mean it. Each Texas Pete sauce is packed with a bold, balanced flavor. The signature tanginess is what makes it a legendary hot sauce that can be used on just about anything. You're definitely going to want to try every flavor. The original hot sauce has a famous secret blend of fermented peppers. Their hotter hot sauce is three times hotter than the original, and it's not for the faint of heart. They also got a flavor called Sabor by Texas Pete, adds authentic Mexican flavor, and they also have a dust-dry seasoning that matches the flavor of the original hot sauce in a flavorful dry rub. But... The flavor that I've been enjoying lately is the chopped sriracha sauce. It's got chili, garlic, and some tropical tangy notes. It's really good. I love putting on my eggs. Texas Pete sauce like you mean it. Visit texaspeat.com and use the store locator to find Texas Pete products as well as purchase sauces and get recipe inspiration. And you can use promo code PODCAST24 
for 20% off at texaspeat.com. That's podcast24 for 20% off at texaspeat.com. Check out the Sriracha Cha Sauce. It's wedding season, and while weddings are all about the bride and groom, they're also a chance for you to look your best. With a fully custom suit from Indochino, you'll walk into wedding season looking like a million bucks, even though suits start at just $499. It's easier than ever to be the best dressed with Indochino. Order your custom suits now, and they'll be ready for wedding season. The process of customizing a suit on Indochino, very easy to do. It's also a lot of fun. I've talked about my navy blue suit I've gotten from Indochino. First off, you can decide how the jacket is, how you want the pockets on the jacket to be, how you want the lapels, uh, the vent on the back, the lining on the pants. You can decide you want pleats or no pleats. I went no pleats on my pants on this one. And then you do the measuring process. You'll need someone to help you, but they have this very easy-to-follow guide. Send that all in. In a few weeks, you have a custom made-to-measure suit sent directly to your door, and you're going to pay about the same price for a suit that you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. Look your best this wedding season at the table or on the dance floor when you wear Indochino. Go to Indochino.com today and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Check it out today. There's a famous Abraham Lincoln quote that goes something like, good things come to those who wait. That's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. Thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you can find qualified candidates fast. And now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. There have been a lot of amazing people as guests on this podcast, but what if you want to go deeper? If you're looking somewhere to learn from the most remarkable people, that's Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 200 classes to pick from with new classes added every month, and they have over 180 world-class instructors, and a lot of them are former AOM podcast guests. For example, Chris Voss has a class on negotiation, Jocko Willink has a class on leadership, and Malcolm Gladwell has a class on writing. With Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. One class that I've really enjoyed is the one with Chris Voss on negotiation. My favorite lesson in that class was the lesson on tactical empathy. It's something we talked about in the podcast that we did with him a long time ago, uh, but he goes in deeper with this. And besides just the lectures, you get exercises so you can actually put this stuff into practice. Right now, listeners will get an additional 15% off annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. And now back to the show. What general tips do you have for people for just visiting a national park? You know, whether they're camping in it or just visiting for a few days, any tips that you found that are useful to get the most out of the national park experience? The single most important thing that we tell everybody is to get up early. Even if your family does not naturally get up early, if you want to hike a popular trail or go to a popular overlook, parking lots fill up and it's, it's, it's amazing. Parking lots tend to fill up by like 10 o'clock. If you can get to a popular trailhead at 7 a.m., you're golden in almost every case. So we'll go to a trailhead at 7 a.m., to a hike like Gorham Mountain Trail in Acadia, 
When we come down the mountain at 10, the parking lot's full and people are circling. So getting up early, even if that's not your natural thing, is, is hugely important. We also tell people to kind of take it slow and don't feel like you have to cram in everything. Uh, we would rather take our time and linger in certain places than say we checked off all 12 things that we wanted to do at Yellowstone. My theory is always, you know, I can come back if I want to. And then we also recommend too, if you do a big activity in the morning, you know, we always hike in the morning with our kids, which they'll grumble about, to be honest. Then we tend to, in the afternoon, kind of let them pick. And that often means going back to a campground pool, maybe going into a town and getting some food or something like that, or buying souvenirs. So creating a balance between what mom and dad want and what the kids want has been hugely important too. And you also highly recommend like visiting the office where the rangers are at because they have lots of useful information. They also, for the kids, I thought it was cool. I didn't know about this, the junior range. It's like the junior rangers. Is that what it's called? Yeah, the Junior Ranger Program. So if you go to the visitor center and you ask for the Junior Ranger booklet, and it'll be like an activity booklet that kids fill out through their day or through a couple of days at the park. And it's, you know, it's answering some questions or it's maybe doing a nature trail. Uh, it varies in difficulty from park to park. And then when you complete the booklet, you bring it back to the visitor center and they will swear you in as a junior ranger. They'll actually do a little ceremony, which is like quite adorable when the kids are little. And then they give them a junior ranger badge. So that program was a huge part uh, of my kids' national park experience when they were little. Yeah, I imagine it keeps your kids from having a meltdown, right? They keep them from complaining or having a bad attitude because it gives them something to do. A hundred percent. And look, if you want to do a national park trip as a mom or a dad, and you are worried about the kid part of it, because you can burn your kids out on uh, another hike, you know, another hike, another hike, another overlook, then camping outside the park can be a really cool way to go. Because then the campground experience can be really fun for them with pools, playgrounds, bocce ball, volleyball, wh whatever it might be. That's always helped us strike a balance. And also, if you have kids, don't forget, if you have a fourth grader, they get to go to the national parks for free. They get a free pass to all the national parks that year. And we took advantage of that during the pandemic. My son was in fourth grade at the time. We had the pass. And so we hit up a lot of national parks during that time. Yeah, that's another great program the National Park Service has, for sure. And in, just in general, though, like the admission's cheap, the camping's cheap. You know, it's all supplemented by our, our tax dollars, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it is a, a national parks trip can be a very affordable family vacation. All right, so let's talk about specific national parks. We've talked about some general tips about how to navigate the reservation system, how to figure out if you're gonna camp inside the park, outside the park, you know, how to get the most out of your park experience. Let's talk about specific parks because you do a great job in the book. You basically talk about every single national park and the ins and outs, where to camp, uh, attractions to check out, things you need to consider when you're planning. So let's talk about some of the really popular national parks. Let's talk about Yosemite. Uh, we've already been talking about Yosemite. And, you know, when we went, I was, before we went, I was wondering, I, you know, is this thing going to live up to the hype? Because you hear about it your entire life. So I was afraid it was going to be overhyped, but it was so incredible. It exceeded expectations. It lived up to the hype and more. But because it's so incredible, it's very popular. It's one of the most popular parks in the country. So are there any problems with overcrowding at Yosemite? Yeah, I mean, Yosemite is the sixth most visited national park. To put it into context, more people visit Yosemite than Yellowstone, and Yellowstone's three times the size. And Yosemite's day-trippable, you know, from San Fran. 
And most people just are going to do the valley part, you know, and that's common in most national parks that most people are going to one spot. Like in Acadia, everybody wants to do Park Loop Road. In Yosemite, everybody wants to do the valley stuff. So if you are willing to go off the beaten track, um, there's often many other options than the ones that people, you know, the people are just kind of driving in, parking, looking around. They don't know exactly what they want to do. You know, maybe they stumble into a little bit of a hike. So, yeah, you said, look, Yosemite, I, I wish I had some, you know, secret answer to doing Yosemite in the summer, but it is a challenge. But we've had people that have gone in the shoulder seasons that have really been raving about, you know, visiting in the, in the non-summer. Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, when we went in February, we hardly saw anyone else on the trails. We had a hike on the snow. It's, there was still snow on the ground. And we did that. That was fine. It was fun, actually. And, you know, there was a ton of people there for for the firefall at the firefall spot but other than that like there was actually a lot of solitude so i wouldn't go again during the firefall time but it seems like winter in general is a great time to hit yosemite what you're saying about the hiking is incredibly true i mean most people are touring in our national parks right they're they're driving in they're parking they don't really quite know what to do they're looking around a little bit Uh, Every national park we've been to, from Yellowstone to Glacier to Acadia, very, very crowded parks, once you get out on the trail, and I'm not even talking deep backcountry, I mean, once you just get out on the trail, it tends to not be super, super crowded. Have you guys camped in Yosemite? Uh, It's been a long time, but yes. So is Yosemite one, I imagine you would recommend, you know, finding a spot outside because it's probably just too stressful to get a spot inside the park. In the book, we have a couple recommendations, but they are 45 minutes to an hour outside of the park. And for most people, that's a bummer. There is a really cool place called Auto Camp Yosemite. And that's um, a campground that's only Airstream rentals. And it's expensive. It's kind of bougie, but that's a really cool option outside of Yosemite. And then there's some some RV resorts that are an hour away that are fine, but it frankly doesn't compare to being in the park. Now, Glacier, somewhere like Glacier, there are awesome, beautiful campgrounds outside of the park. So it's going to vary from park to park. Okay. So Yosemite, I, I, I recommend Yosemite if you're going to visit national. It's, it's fantastic. Another iconic summer national park destination is the Grand Canyon. Anything people should consider when planning a road trip or a camping trip to the Grand Canyon? So there's some similarities with Yosemite, right? So the gateway town of Williams is over an hour away, right? So sort of you're in the park or you're far away, The reservation system's a little bit simpler. So you can reserve six months in advance there. And on the south rim, the more popular rim, there are campgrounds that are open year-round, and there's a few campgrounds that are just in the summer. Now, on the north rim, it's it's seasonal camping. There's no camping in the winter. So you could do off-season Grand Canyon. And in fact, a lot of people say it's really, really beautiful to go. I mean, you run the risk of having bad weather, but... There's campgrounds open year-round. You might consider the shoulder seasons there. And Williams is really cool as a gateway town. So I would certainly recommend like stopping there, spending a couple nights there, and then going into the Grand Canyon. Okay, so camping six months, advanced reservation mostly? I would definitely get on six months if you want that reservation, gotcha. for sure. Because the, camp- the campgrounds will book in the summer. Uh, shoulder seasons are going to be a bit more friendly. Grand Canyon too, like I, I, for me, like you want to be there for a sunrise and a sunset. But I feel like, the average person can go for just a couple nights and really experience the Grand Canyon unless you want to get super adventurous and do some serious hiking. You don't need a week at the Grand Canyon, I don't think, personally. Yeah. No, we went to the Grand Canyon when I was a kid. I think we just did a day 
I mean, we were just kind of driving through and we stopped. Probably could have done a little bit longer. We also talk about inside the Grand Canyon National Park, there are different types of attractions that besides the camping are going to require advanced reservation. What are some examples of that? Like if you want to do a floating trip or something like that, you're going to need to hook up with a concessionaire and you're definitely going to need tickets for something like that. But all the hiking is, as far as I know right now, there's no reservations for things like that. But if you're going to be doing something with a concessionaire or like a deeper hike into the canyon and staying overnight, that's all something you're you're going to definitely be booking in advance. All right, let's talk about the most popular national park. That's Great Smoky Mountains, correct? Yeah, so Great Smoky Mountains is the most visited national park. I, I think they topped, oh, they almost hit 14 million visitors last year. And I think that's like twice the amount of visitors that other national parks get. And just it's just a population density issue, right? I mean, great. I could hop in my car right now from the New Jersey. I could be to Great Smoky Mountains in 10, 10 hours. So people all up and down the East Coast can get to the Smokies within a day's drive. Um, so yeah, it's super, super popular. It up to very recently was completely free to enter the park, which is maybe one of the reasons it gets very crowded. But Great Smokies to me is very accessible and much less stressful than some of these other places we've been talking about, for sure. What's the camping like inside Great Smoky? Lots of great camping. And when you think of Great Smoky Mountains National Park, you have the Tennessee side and you have the North Carolina side. So you can approach the park from two different states, which is another reason why it's so crowded. But there are tons of great MPS campgrounds in and around the park. There's probably about 15 of them. There's places like Smokemont and Elkmont that are super popular, harder to get, but much easier than the other places we talked about. And then the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, there's several gateway towns where we were saying, you know, Yosemite doesn't really have an immediate gateway town. Grand Canyon doesn't have a gateway town. Great Smoky Mountains National Park has Cherokee on the North Carolina side. It has Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge on the Tennessee side, which is almost like a little mini Las Vegas right outside of the gates of the park, then also Townsend. So there's a massive, um, there's probably a hundred campgrounds outside of the park. So you don't hear about the stressful stories. If you can't get a site inside the park, you just move to one of the KOAs outside of the park. The last time we went to the Smokies, we stayed at Camp Margaritaville. We stayed at a Jimmy Buffett property 10 minutes from the gates and, you know, my wife's drinking margaritas at night. There's a pool. There's a hot tub. It's a very different type of national park strip than the ones out west we've talked about. It also got, it's got Dollywood, too. Dollywood know. is awesome. Is it? I, I mean, is it, is it really that great? I, I, I've got some family members who go there all the time. And I'm like, why would you go to Dolly World over and over again? I'll tell you why. I'll make the case for Dollywood. Lots of live music. So the, the ticket, you know, you pay your ticket price which is not cheap. I mean, it's less than Disney World, but certainly not cheap to go to Dollywood. But there's live music all day. You could literally not go on a ride and just go from concert to concert to concert. And these are good people, okay? These are good, good high-level high talent. But then also, Dollywood has world-class roller coasters. Like, I like roller coasters. I won't go on super frightening upside-down roller coasters, but they have those too. So, you know, if you want music and you want entertainment, you want food, all that's there. But if you also want the thrills of the roller coasters, that's there too. Now, for the national park purist who's somebody who's into hiking and all that stuff, you know, you might want to avoid Dollywood. But we've gone twice and we really, really liked it. All right. So Great Smoky Mountains sounds like camping inside the park. 
it's not as stressful as the ones out west. And there's also great camping outside as well and a lot of other stuff to do outside the national park. And just from like reading about it, I've never been, but it sounds like a lot of great hiking as well. Hiking there is beautiful. We did a hike this past year where you can actually hike up to a national park lodge and spend the night, the Lacante Lodge. And the only way you can get there is by hiking. But there's beautiful hiking there. And in the Great Smokies, it's like rushing rivers, you know, really deep, thickly green forests. And then you kind of emerge at the end to, to a view of the mountains. So it is, it is a very good hiking park. All right. So Yellowstone is another popular national park, but it's also huge. So any tips on getting the most out of your Yellowstone visit? Yeah. Yellowstone was definitely one of our favorite trips. You need to decide where your base camp is for Yellowstone because you can enter the park from so many different places. And we decided to use West Yellowstone as our base camp, which is actually in Montana. But Yellowstone is a driving park to me more than it is like a hiking park. It's a touring park where a big part of the experience is going to be hopping in your car, driving from place to place to place. So planning for those drives and not being shocked you know, that you have to do a lot of driving is a big part of the experience. We actually love the driving, but we learn to bring snacks into the park, bring water into the park. You often end up pretty far away from concessions. And we did Yellowstone, like I mentioned earlier, in the last week of August. And I could have landed a plane in the Old Faithful parking lot. It was so empty. So the, I, mean, I know Yellowstone is definitely crowded in June and July, but end of August would be a really good time to do Yellowstone. And If it's your first time, a big tip would be to concentrate on the lower loop. Now, there's awesome things in the upper loop, but um, the lower loop has so many of the iconic places we think about, like Old Faithful, like Grand Prismatic Springs. And then if you have more time, you could do the lower loop and say two days, three days. Then if you have a longer trip to Yellowstone, then head into the upper loop, do Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, and then Lamar Valley is quite far away from everything up there in the upper loop. But the wildlife was incredible. We were in like five bison jams. You know, if you're going for, if you're going to Yellowstone for, for wildlife, go to Lamar Valley. Don't let people tell you to go to Hayden Valley. That was a total bust for us. And I've heard that from other people. Lamar Valley is the place to go to see bison. What's camping like in Yellowstone? So many options. There's a universe of camping inside Yellowstone. In the lower loop, the Madison campground is one of the more popular options. But then there's there are campgrounds in all of the different parts of the park. So, you know, if it's like your first trip to Yellowstone, look at Madison campground. That's relatively close to the gateway town of West Yellowstone. And then as you progress into a second or third Yellowstone trip, you can get kind of deeper into the park, further into the park, into the northern loop and get sites there. And it's going to be easier to get sites in the Northern Loop than the Southern Loop because the Southern Loop's where everybody goes. And then there's great gateway towns, KOAs. There's all that stuff right outside of the park. And another nice thing about Yellowstone, depending on where you are in the park, it's really close by to Grand Teton National Park. I liked Grand Teton more. And I I sometimes, I totally liked Grand Teton more. It's a super short drive from the bottom of Yellowstone into Grand Teton. I mean, if I'm remembering correctly, it's like a 10-minute drive. And personally for me, I liked Grand Teton more because we're a hiking family. And like Teton's a hiking park to me, where Yellowstone is more of that like, you know, cruising around in your car kind of park. And I just thought the views were more resplendent and awe-inspiring in Teton. 
I am not saying that Yellowstone is overrated, but my whole life people have been saying Yellowstone, Yellowstone, best park, national park in the country. And it was, you know, maybe not even in my top five. Grand Teton was certainly in my top three. And Grand Teton's great for camping. So in the center of Grand Teton National Park, there's an area called Coulter Village. And it's all concessionaire run, but there's um, there's a RV specific campground. There's a tent camping specific campground. There's a cabin area. We stayed in cabins last time. The ca- and cabins can be an option in some of these national parks. The cabins in Teton were adorable. Then they have this area called like the tent city or something like that, where two of the walls are made of wood and two of the walls are canvas and it's kind of like rustic glamping. So Teton's pretty easy to figure out the camping thing too. Yeah, I would agree. Grand Teton is much better than Yellowstone. We went there, I think it was twenty end of 2021, and we did Grand Teton. And what's amazing about Grand Teton, it's, it seems so out of place in the United States. It, you look up at it, and it looks like you're looking at the Matterhorn, you're, like you're in Switzerland, but it's, the United, it's crazy. It's, the views are great. And then, yeah, then we went to Yellowstone, we just kind of drove around. That was it. But Teton was the highlight. Yeah, and Jackson's great too. Like I've not spent much time in my life being jealous of rich people, but you know, when I was in Jackson, I was like, man, I wouldn't mind living here, you know, right at the base of Grand Teton. I mean, to be able to just drive from your house into Grand Teton National Park would be amazing. So you mentioned you wouldn't say Yellowstone is overrated, but it didn't entirely live up to the hype. Are there any national parks you would say are you think are overrated, even amongst the ones we've talked about, like, you know, Grand Canyon, et cetera? I, I very rarely go to one of these parks and oh this is this is overrated. I just tend to be a guy that's like I'm just so happy to be there. I think Olympic is underrated in Washington State. I think Olympic is one of our most majestic national parks, and it's certainly not on as many people's bucket lists as a bunch of these other ones that we've talked about. We loved Mount Rushmore. Now a lot of people say Mount Rushmore is overrated. And we certain, and I, there's the history of Mount Rushmore is very complicated, et cetera, et cetera, politically. But we, re, our family, really liked Mount Rushmore and Crazy Horse. I also, I would say, Badlands National Park is underrated. Badlands National Park in South Dakota, you feel like you're on another planet. It's not that big. It doesn't take that many days to see, and a lot of people just kind of skip it on their road trip out west to get to Yellowstone. But I think that one's underrated as well. Yeah, if you go to Badlands, you get to hang out where Teddy Roosevelt hung out. Exactly. And well, and Theodore Roosevelt National Park, I would say underrated up in North Dakota. It's just so hard to get to. That's part of the problem. Well, I think too, I mean, maybe you know more about this because I think when most people think national parks, they're thinking the big ones out West. Are there any overlooked national parks in the East that people like, man, you should go check that out because it's actually really cool. A hundred percent. So like in the East, we have Acadia National Park in Maine, which is one of the most visited. Okay. So that one's very popular, but then you have Cape Cod National Seashore, which my family adores Cape Cod National Seashore. It's not underrated in our region, if that makes sense. Everyone knows it around here, but I don't know many people from out West who are like, I've got to get to Cape Cod National Seashore. So I'd say nationally, that one is sort of a little bit off the radar, then I think Shenandoah National Park in Virginia is definitely underrated. I think it's overshadowed by Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which is somewhat nearby. Shenandoah is beautiful, a beautiful hiking, beautiful views. It only takes a couple of days to see it. And now New River Gorge is our newest national park. So I don't know if I want to say it's overrated or underrated yet, because I think people are just 
sort of figuring it out and discovering it. But I do think that that will emerge as a really, really popular national park in the East. And I, I also love Cape Hatteras National Seashore in North Carolina. That is astonishing beach camping options, et cetera, et cetera. And everybody on the East Coast knows it, but I don't think that nationally people know it. And we mentioned too, the uh, Civil War sites, that's also governed by the National Park Service. And like you mentioned, you can camp not exactly in the monuments, but nearby. And that could be another cool, you can plan a whole summer vacation around that. We're just going to camp along these Civil War sites. Yeah, because like Gettysburg is really close to Hagerstown. And then they're both really close to Harper's Ferry. So those three, and there's not campgrounds in those parks, but there's a culture of camping outside of the parks that you could do a tour of those three battlefields. You could do a week, a week's trip, camp around those three battlefields, and then maybe also head down to Fredericksburg, Virginia. And that's cool too, because then you're getting history. You know, it's a whole different type of national park trip than just, you know, going hiking out west. So you all have done a lot of camping and RVing to national parks, but there's a lot of great state parks too. Do you guys have like a list of your favorite state parks that you think are almost as good as a national park, but don't have the crowds? hundred percent. The first one that always comes to mind when people, you know, ask about state parks, Custer State Park in South Dakota. If it changed to a national park tomorrow, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I'm sure the state doesn't want it to. It is just as grand as any national park I've been to. The wildlife at Custer State Park was better than Yellowstone. And I had people tell me that before. I didn't believe them. But then we went there and we saw more bison there than we saw in Lamar Valley in Yellowstone. So Custer is magnificent. There's like 13 campgrounds in Custer. Like South Dakota takes a lot of pride in their state park system. And I think that Custer is the crown jewel. And then you could camp in Custer and go right to Mount Rushmore. It's not very far. South Dakota, most people blow through South Dakota. We always tell people South Dakota is its own vacation. Another one to consider, and this is not technically a state park, But the Adirondack Park in New York State, it's operated separately from the state park system. That is another place that is just as magnificent as any national park. And I feel like it flies way under the radar for people all across the country, filled with great camping, filled with great hiking, filled with fishing, with waterfalls, any outdoor activity you want, you can find in the Adirondack Park. And the Adirondack Park is massive. And it's intertwined with communities and towns. It's very, very different than a national park. And then my favorite state park in the country, personally, is Assateague State Park in Maryland, where you can camp right on the beach, you know, where you can hear the waves crashing over the dunes from your tent site or RV site. Maybe not as big or as grand as a national park, but just as beautiful to me. For me, one that sticks out, if you're going to Zion, in southern Utah, there's a state park that's nine miles from St. George. It's Snow Canyon State Park. It exceeded my expectations on the hiking and the views. So if you're going to Zion or you don't want to deal with the crowds at Zion, check out Snow Canyon State Park. And then another great state park I like, I don't know if you can camp in there, but Jack London State Park. It's by San Francisco kind of. So you got the redwoods, great hiking, small, like hardly any crowds. And you got to you get to see like where Jack London, like he built this house out of materials in the area. And the week before he moved in, it burnt down to the ground and the ruins are still there. You can check that out. So that's cool. Jack London State Park in California. That reminds me of Mark Twain State Park in Missouri, where Mark Twain's, I think, birthplace home is there in that park as well. Well, Jeremy, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? 
So the books are Where Should We Camp Next? And now the follow-up is Where Should We Camp Next? National Parks. You can get it wherever books are sold. Get it at an independent bookstore or from Amazon, obviously. And then everything else we do is at the RV Atlas, the RV Atlas podcast, at the RV Atlas on all the different social media handles. Fantastic. Well, Jeremy Puglisi, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And again, thank you for having all the great authors on the show and letting us uh, talk about our books. Appreciate it so much. My guest today is Jeremy Puglisi. He's the co-author of the book, Where Should We Camp Next? National Parks. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about him and his wife's work at thervatlas.com. Also check out the podcast, The RV Atlas Podcast on any podcast platform you enjoy. And check out our show notes at aom.is slash nationalparks. We find links to resources when we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the A1 Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the A1 Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLYS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay, reminding you to not listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com/music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel.